This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena de Groot. Today, my totally normal crisis. Natalie Shapiro is very private. There's almost nothing about her life online. So most of what I know about her, I got from the poems. For instance, Natalie Shapiro is the queen of line breaks. She'll break at just the right moment like a detective in a noir movie who takes a long drag of a cigarette before finishing his sentence of who did it. She's also intensely funny. A bird screams out my window, she writes, like an alarm I have set to notify me when a bird is there. Though most of her lines are a lot darker than that. Wars are like children, she writes. You create one, offer scant effort, then call it botched as the years accrue. Go off and make a new one with somebody else. In her latest collection, titled Popular Longing, she investigates, let's just say, the human heart under late-stage capitalism. For instance, the ways in which we politely fold away our grief so as not to bother the people in charge, our boss, our landlord, the generous donor who supports the arts, But knowing the taint of money doesn't make us need it less. So how to get it? There's any number of ways, from gainful employment to a life of crime. But Natalie Shapiro found a more original route. I saw that you were a contestant on Wheel of Fortune. That's right. (laughs) Can you just tell me, like, how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I... So, I mean, there are a few different ways, I guess, to tell that story. But when we moved to L.A., I wanted to try to get on TV. (laughs) I felt that it was in the spirit of moving to L.A. And (laughs) I thought it would be an interesting thing to do. My family and I had watched a lot of Wheel of Fortune in the early part of COVID because our child was home from kindergarten. And we thought it would be a good way for her to think about letters and word letter sounds and letter combinations. And, you know, it's very sparkly. And, um, (laughs) and I, like many people, I had a lot of memories of watching it with my grandparents. This was something that I learned from being on the show is that many people who are on the show watched it with their grandparents. (laughs) So it was just like sort of one of our pandemic traditions that we started. And like the actual process of applying kind of started as something fun that I was trying to do for like almost to entertain my kid and her friends uh, who were, because you have to make a little video of yourself being very enthusiastic. And, um, and the kids, they helped me film it and, you know, they were there and everything. But I I just wanted to like, and this is something that kind of has been ongoing in my life at this time. And maybe in the, maybe in the lives of, of a lot of people, like following the past few years that we have all had, but just trying to have different experiences that are intense in different ways. And in some ways, like, it's not that intense to go on like a very, um, routinized and I'm sure focus grouped uh, television show, (laughs) but it just, it wasn't an experience that I had had before. I also like, since moving to LA, I have been trying to do things that I 
couldn't do if I wasn't in LA, I guess, oh, to try to, to feel the feeling of the place. And I did have this, depending on how you look at it, unpredictable or predictable experience of spending like a bunch of years writing this book that's very much about like mythologies of California in different ways. And that was conceptualized when I was in LA before, just spending time with friends who lived out here. You know, and during the part of COVID when all arts events were remote, I was doing these performances of the book where I was wearing all of these clothes that said California all at the same time and then taking one <laughs> off and having another California shirt on underneath and taking that off and having another California shirt. And so I felt like I had done all of these sort of screen performances of California in my previous iteration of my life in New England. And then I was like, I'm going to come here and I'm going to do a screen performance of California in California by being on a television show that feels very, very L.A. And then even if you're like doing this kind of because it's silly and entertaining and why not at California, I can imagine that just being there that it has its own momentum, you know, because they take their job seriously, right? And so at what point did something different kicking? Like, did it ever stop being sort of a joke? Or like, you know, what happened when you were actually there? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, it's incredibly impressive to actually be there and to see a, I mean, I think film and TV production, the little that I've seen of it, it's very impressive. People are doing extremely high-level work extremely well, and also working together. And for, like, many of us who do creative work alone, it's always cool to see people doing something as a team, and it's a different kind of energy, and it's a different kind of aptitude, I, I guess, that you have to have uh. to do it. And they're also doing so many things at once. And like while you're getting sort of like your hair done and your makeup done so you can be on TV, there are also people who are just buzzing around all the time being like, think about what letters go next to each other. BL, CL. And, um, and that's like, that's the other thing that I thought was very interesting and impressive is it's very disorienting for people who have never been on TV to suddenly be on a game show. And they do such a good job at constantly just reminding you that you're on a game show and what you're supposed to be doing and that you're supposed to be guessing words, mm -hmm. like sort of accommodating for people f like freaking out or like going blank, which is must happen like all the time. Uh, yeah, I, like it was um, like it was very interesting. I actually am like I am trying to write something about it, TBD. Um, That's cool. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and did you have one of those like brain farts or stage fright? Were you hit by something that kind of paralyzed you a little or scared you? I mean, I I felt personally confused by the experience just because it moves very fast and I wasn't accustomed to it. Um, I did. I won the show. I um, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was like also very confusing. And um, I, I really was like, it was like one of these things where I was like, it happened so fast. I don't even really know what's going on exactly. Um, so it was like, it was weird to watch it on TV because I, I was like, I don't really have any, not that I don't have a memory of it, but <laughs> the whole thing felt surprising. I was like, I remember just being confused at all of these points. It told yeah. me and that your hands were sweaty or something yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> and 
Uh, again, I don't know how much you want to say about it, but you did win a little over $50,000, which like, yeah. I don't even know. Like first silly question, is this money taxed or is the whole yeah, thing yours? Yeah. yeah, no. Um, I mean, I got it this year, so I haven't actually like done my taxes. I assume it's like between 30 and 50%, depending on how it gets taxed. I got to figure it out. Right, yeah. right, right. Okay, right. So then it's slightly less spectacular, but still, still it's nice. Still, you know, it's to still have. huge. Yeah, I thought it was pretty enormous, especially in yeah. the poetry business. Yeah, exactly. Um, what did that do for your life? What is something that's now possible because of it? Uh, we're trying to figure that out. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't. I honestly, I don't know. We're trying to figure it out, but. Um, You know, something that I am trying to write about a little bit is that to, I think, to get on a game show, you know, because it's a pretty extensive audition process. Um, and to get on a game show, it's kind of clear while you're in that process that it's helpful to have a concrete thing that you say you want to buy with money. That's mm. something that is fun. And I, I don't know this for sure, but it's something that I sensed, at least through the process, that they're more likely maybe, and I don't think this is just Wheel of Fortune, I think this is probably like every game show that's supposed to be like fun and, you know, it's about selling products that are advertised on the show and stuff. You know, it feels like they're more likely to be interested in contestants who have a specific purchase that is a leisure item. Um, uh, right. Like and, not like I'm going to insulate my roof or something right, like that. Right, um, right. Or like I'm going to pay off my you know, hand injury from 15 yeah. years ago or whatever. But the, I mean, the reality obviously of the economy is that most people are just going to use money to like pay bills and stuff. And I certainly got that feeling, you know, when you meet the other contestants, right? Because they film five shows in a single day and then there are alternates there also. So there are 17 people at once who are kind of like the cohort of people being on Wheel of Fortune that day or potentially being on Wheel of Fortune. And it's not like we're like a bunch of millionaires or whatever. But yeah, yeah. Um, so I think there is some kind of like disjunct between the um, the outward performance of like, I'm going to do something really fun with this money and like the economic reality of like probably everyone's just going to like pay for necessities. So what was the, <laughs> the thing that you came up with? Like, oh, I'll spend it on this one thing. Um, big vacation. Okay, great. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually did win a big vacation, which I am going to go on. Ooh, so you can get to go on the big vacation and then spend your money on insulating your roof. That's great. Or paying off your hand injury. Well, I find it so interesting, you know, to hear you talk about the money aspects. Because you write so much about the logic of the market that is completely impregnated every last bit, it seems, of society definitely not excluding the art world, right? And I can imagine as a poet, you don't really go into poetry thinking of uh, making money or, you know, and then you discover that this world is actually awash in money, you know, often made in, yeah, in, in industries like pharmaceuticals or mining or oil or, you know, whatever. And yeah, Poetry Foundation included, of course. Uh, they got their endowment from um, the heir of a pharmaceutical sure. magnate. And, you know, you write, like, for instance, you write in one of your poems about the ways in which we kind of 
wash those sins away because of philanthropy, right? Sure. Uh, you write, the river is heavy with phosphorus and scum. It causes liver damage if ingested. I don't know exactly whose runoff it is, but so long as they're donating sizable sums to the ballet, I take no issue. River is yours. Um, which is very funny and very sad and very true and, you know, like so many of your poems. Um, and I'm wondering, like, you know, do you feel in you that this reality of being an artist in the art world where money has that weird way of influencing people's behavior, do you feel like it changes you also? Um, that's a great question. And yeah, yes. I mean, I think that a lot of my most recent book is absolutely about kind of underpinned by the ways in which I have behaved differently to try to get money from people who had it. Just this idea of inhabiting like a posture of subordination and a posture of gratitude and sort of sucking up, I guess. <laughs> and it's something that I'm I'm very interested in. Yeah. And like, you know, when do you feel like for you, you woke up to that reality of, oh, there's a whole lot of money and I am clearly in a way dancing to its tune, even though, you know, probably that's not what you want to do. It's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, not to like go to like the most bird's eye view, but I think that's, you know, like part of the realities of capitalism and like like you notice that in your first job or or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think I always have been interested in ways of behaving at work. Like the idea of like the performance of like being an employee and the performance of being at work. Yeah, I don't know. Um, like there have been times in my life when it's become more acute for me. Um, you know, while I was writing this book, you know, my family and I were renting a house where we lived in Boston, it was very competitive, like rental market or whatever. And, you know, especially when we first moved there, we were just like, we didn't know really how to afford it, I guess. So we made a deal with our landlords who lived next door where we would babysit for their child in exchange for a rent break. So I think a lot of this book came out of some combination of working in a new job, trying to figure it out, like having a new home where also like we were kind of at work because we did this um, domestic work for the people who like with whom we shared a house. And, you know, I was also involved at the time my child was in the school district and they were having a lot of labor issues and really underpaying especially their paraprofessionals who are like the teacher's assistants. And so just the city in which we lived was like, like one of these cities where their image of themselves was like, we're like a bastion of progressivism. And then you would go to the city council meetings and there are city employees who are like, you know, I make $15,000 a year to get like bit and kicked by dysregulated toddlers who are probably dysregulated because their families are in precarious housing and employment situations. Like, and so that's really where the book really came out of that, uh, the sight of all of that. Yeah. That's, I think, what 
is so moving and arresting about your collection is that, yes, you talk about all these bird's eye view issues that I think a lot of us are thinking about, you know, like the ways in which capitalism shapes our society. But you do it by focusing on such an intimate level, um, kind of babysitting in, in exchange for uh, a rent break. It's so intimate, right? That like now sure. you have your landlord's kid and they need to go to the bathroom and like what does it mean if you love that kid you know like if you start really liking that kid and you know stuff like that and yeah I was just wondering because I know that you read a lot and I think your husband is also a professor and teaches about like you know the philosophy of of, uh, neoliberalism and oh my god how did that's how did you find that information (laughs) 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 I'm so curious no no it's fine I'm like (laughs) I want to know. I'm gonna. I'm always scouring the internet, and I love another internet scour. <laughs> okay, let me see. In the acknowledgments of Hard Child, your previous collection, there was a mention of um, Ricky, and I can't remember what the sentence was, but I figured out that that was your partner. Sure. And then I googled your full name plus Ricky. Nice. And then I came on the Wheel of Fortune thing, actually. That was (laughs) the only thing that came up because it was mentioned that he was there to like, you know, whatever, celebrate you or something, you know. And of course, I googled him and I saw that he's a professor. Nice. Um, Well done. (laughs) (laughs) But so, you know, I, I was thinking about that, like you're reading a lot of, you know, theory and people who really write like academic tomes on, you know, yeah, the 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 way that our contemporary society is structured along the lines of, you know, professionalism and all that. And I imagine that with your husband, you know, those topics filter into your conversations. But in your poems, you make it so concrete. You make it so, you bring it down to the level of the... Um, yeah, the most intimate often. And I wonder how you do that. Yeah, that's a good question. And not one I've really specifically thought about before. In some ways, it doesn't feel like a risk to get lost in the intellectual backdrop or whatever, because I do sort of read a lot of theory and read a lot of history and cultural criticism, but my writing process always starts with something that feels really intense, I guess. I I don't know. Mm. I'm a pretty extensive reader and researcher and note taker, but that stuff doesn't come into the poems until like stage two, I guess. Like stage one is always like this thing that happened two weeks ago feels enduring. I mean, in some ways, I guess that's like my first question is like, what am I, (laughs) what am I feeling the most feelings about and what has (laughs) endurance? And then I'm interested in sort of like, why did this feel so strongly? And then I think I will go from there to try to understand it, like situated in a larger context. But I mean, I could like sort of say something annoying, like specificity is the soul of narrative. <laughs> but but I think you know it's that's not a bad maxim if you if yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. have one. Yeah, yeah, it's not because it's a total cliche yeah. that it is not yeah. true. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just gonna you know what you were saying before about how your first job and sort of this pose that you're forced into almost automatically. 
you know, how that woke you up to how pervasive this money thinking is. And I'm just going to that poem, Green, because that's really, you know, seems like about that. Yeah. And I was wondering if you wanted to read it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, On page 21. Wow, you do have all the information. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sure. Green. I saw an image of Cleopatra being delivered to Caesar in a rolled-up rug, just falling from the rug, and at work I began to be worried that others, and especially those in supervisory roles, viewed me as green, temperamentally inexpert. I tried wearing crisper shirts, but it didn't help. So, of course, when all my friends began to die, I found at last a means of proving myself through inattention to their passing. I refrained from sharing remembrances. That time we pulled B's ruined tooth, or when L and I hiked out to the obverse side of the Hollywood sign. When colleagues sought to console me, I offered only the stoic rejoinder, death is a part of life. I underwent my yearly performance assessment and was prompted to name a task at which I excelled. I responded, truly knowing that death is a part of life. And when they requested I then articulate a plan for the coming year, I said speaking louder when stating that death is a part of life and perhaps appending an amplifying gesture. I returned to my desk and removed my heels and capped my pen and called B's mom and told her about the tooth. She recounted for me his younger years, mud covered or up to his shoulders in the cold ocean. She said he had been ready to die, that through his suffering he'd sworn it several times, though also he'd said several times that he wasn't ready. It was tough to know. Thank you. You, Your poems are really, they do damage. I just want you to know that, you know, they are so funny and they open you up. And then when you're like nice and open, you just go in for the... Kill. No, that, um, that means a lot. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as far as compliments go, I, I don't know if that was the best job that I did at that's that. Like, that's but. a great, that's a, that, no, that's how I want them to be read, really. I'm see, I, that was completely serious. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, mine too. Um, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it, throughout, it just, it, things keep hitting you, and especially because you have such a casual way like you really capture so well the ways in which we speak, you know, you you move from that kind of, oh, you know, I'm afraid they viewed me as green at work. You know, I tried wearing crisper shirts, didn't help. And then you move sort of seamlessly into, so of course, when all of my friends began to die, I found at last a means of proving myself through inattention to their passing. Yeah. Even that sentence is sort of inattentive to their passing, right? Because you have the comma just like, so of course, when they all began to die, comma, you know, and so on. Yeah. And then it keeps going with the slight absurdist take of, you know, my uh, performance assessment was prompted to name a task at which I excelled. I responded, truly knowing that death is a part of life. I mean, it's so funny. I just imagine that you would really put this. That would be fantastic. Um, (laughs) I mean, you might have. I I don't know you. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, I'll tell you that, you know, I submitted this book to my employer when I was being reviewed for my job because I'm a poetry professor. 
Wow. So in some ways, I did really put that. Oh my, that, that is amazing. Well, okay. I, you just, again, like, you know, uh, rose a few ranks in my esteem. Um, yeah. And then that end is just, um, it was really hard to take, you know, like I returned to my desk and removed my heels and capped my pen and called B's mom. You, you earlier in the mention you, in the poem, you mentioned B, you know, one of the friends who died, I refrained from sharing remembrances that time we pulled B's ruined tooth. So yeah, the narrator calls B's mom and tells her about the tooth. She recounted for me his younger years, mud covered up to his shoulders in the cold ocean. She said he had been ready to die, that through his suffering he'd sworn it several times, though also he'd said several times that he wasn't ready. It was tough to know. Um, and I just kept noticing across your work, not just in this collection, that death keeps creeping into your poems and the ways in which it sort of stands almost at a, at an odd angle with like everything else, all the striving, all the, you know, the, 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 the trying to make money, trying to wear crisp shirts so that you're taken seriously like all of that and then it's always like kind of interrupted by death and also the authenticity of it sorry i'm just saying so many things there's no question yet i will get there Uh, yeah like so many of your poems also interrogate what is real like what do we really feel um can we even know what we really feel um, and so, yeah, you sort of saying like, uh, she said we had been ready to die, that he had sworn it several times, though he also said several times he wasn't ready. It was tough to know. Um, I'm just curious about like your process as you're writing about both like capitalism and sort of how that makes everything a little bit fake and then truth, whether that's the truth of our mortality or the truth of your own feelings, um, or the truth about capitalism. You know, I just wonder like how you peel back the layers in yourself. How's that process? You know, like how do you how do you hold yourself to account to be as honest as you can be, and then more honest still? How does that go? Yeah, I mean, I think that something that I have done to skirt all of <laughs> all of these things that you're talking about is really sort of develop at least for a while like a at first implicit and then explicit artistic practice of being like I write f- from a phony perspective or like a phony posture like I write about these situations where you can't you know, because of various kinds of like vulnerability or precarity or taboo, you can't articulate the truth. And mm-hmm. so my poems are like, what do you say instead at that moment? And, um, you know, I think that I, I developed that practice in part because it was an intellectual interest, but also in part because I have trouble <laughs> saying the things that are earnest <laughs> and I'm a very private person and it's hard for me to talk about how I really feel. And I, um, 
you know, like I, I think it, I have become interested or I became interested in like looking at like moments of sort of deflecting things or like making a joke instead of saying what's mm -hmm. really happening and trying to get things through subtext and then like looking at all of these different kinds of sites of disempowerment where, you know, you're going to be fucked if you say what's actually going on. Um, mm -hmm. So right. subtext is your language. Like at work, you can indeed not show the full extent of your grief over the death sure. of your friends. Yeah. 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 And that's like a lot of the question of this poem and a lot of the question of this book is like, where does like the intensity of feeling that can't, um, uh, you know, that like has no quarter at work, like where does it go if it doesn't kind of go there? And, you know, I think that the fixation on death is in part kind of about it being, um, inescapable or ubiquitous truth of existence, but also, you know, just like about the ways in which capitalism is a cult of death and um, so many of the structures are driving us toward that. So that's, a, I guess, an interest of mine is making explicit, like the kind of capitalist paradigms in which death is tacit, and, but like omnipresent. Yeah, and I think that's also one of the most insidious things about capitalism is that it gives the illusion of freedom. Like, nobody is telling me what to do or what to say, but you just are policing yourself the whole time. Like, at work, you know you don't have to be told that you cannot show your grief openly. And I'm wondering, you know, like, sometimes when we police ourselves it becomes very hard to distinguish sort of the voice of capitalism, whatever that is, from our own voice. And I'm wondering, when did you see that it was actually not you doing that? Because I think like sometimes when things are not societally okay, we also end up thinking that they're not okay. We, sure, often sure. people can't even cry in public, sure, right? Yeah. Like it becomes physically impossible. That's never been my so problem, I'm, I'll just say. <laughs> Mine either, but I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I phrased my question like clearly. I just wonder, like, because so much of your collection is about estrangement from yourself. Sure. Like, how did you know what you wanted to do at work and what was imposed on you? Um. Yeah, it's a good question. Um. You know, to me, it is you know, sort of like self-silencing in a variety of different contexts, like not just the employment context, but like, um, you know, like a lot of my like earlier work is like about violence. Y you know, that's like a learned behavior, I guess, from sort of a collective failure to know how to respond to things. And like, and I have struggled with it on the other side too. Like, you know, like someone's telling me something that I don't know how to respond to. And then I'm doing like a shitty job of, like holding space for what they're saying. And then maybe the next time they talk to someone, they are not going to talk about that because they're not like getting the feedback that like, this is an okay thing to talk about. And, you know, I think that it like those questions are, you know, they come up for many of us, like very frequently. I think when you work in the creative writing classroom, like that's mm -hmm. something that you are, like, that's on your mind all the time, right. Is like, 
how are we receiving stories that people are telling? And you see, like, all, like all day, you see people reacting to one another's stories and trying to understand, like, what are the very specific ways that you can tell a story that will get it to get through? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and which elements, like, do you hold back? Because sometimes it's just too much or like people like stories when you tell them in a way that's funny or that is disarming and that gets a better response. Um, and so like, you know, in my work, I'm like, like I focus a lot on those moments where someone is trying to tell a story and the recipient is not receiving it. But in my actual life, you know, I don't, you know, obviously I don't want to have those uh, moments. So like, I think it's an ongoing like struggle or problem or puzzle, both how to do the best job at like being honest and straightforward about like what's going on with me and also how to do the best job of being open and compassionate uh -huh. with other people who are trying to tell me something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting as you're talking about like, you know, working in the field of, you know, telling stories and you're always reading other people's stories and kind of noticing what passes and what doesn't, like what gets through to people and what doesn't, you know, that one of the sort of cold hard truths that you've noticed is like, oh, humor seems to like help, you know, get the thing through to people. They want to listen when you're funny and your poems are really, really funny. And I wonder like what, how you use humor without feeling like you're doing the cold calculated thing that is, you know, sort of efficient marketing almost, you know what I mean? Where you're like, this will get the message seen and heard, you know, how, how do you keep it real? You know, in, in some ways it's just been like an interesting kind of like creative puzzle to like see what you can put in there that people will laugh at. And I have had like almost like challenges for myself to like try to, um, okay, well, so I'll tell you like the very brief evolution of this. <laughs> Please. <laughs> technique. Um, <laughs> so I had a poem in my first book that the first part of the poem has some like really silly jokes in it, just like real goofy stuff. And then the second part of the poem is heavy. And... I found when I would do readings, because it was my first book, I hadn't really done readings before. And like, I hadn't really thought about how much humor is like a signal to people of like how they're going to like react. However you open the poem, what, you open the poem with rhyme, they're going to think it's going to rhyme the whole time. So, mm -hmm. um, so people would laugh through the whole poem. <laughs> like they would <laughs> laugh at the silly parts and then they would laugh at the, the second part, which was like not a joke. Ooh. And at first I was like, this is, very upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't enjoy it. But I also have a, just like a horror of giving like directives to the audience of how to respond. Like I didn't want to start it by like being like, my next poem is funny in the beginning and then it's not funny. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and I also think if you tell people that something isn't funny, then it better be really serious. 
Like, <laughs> you're raising the bar on yourself. Um, <laughs> Most things are funny when you insist they are not. Yeah, right, they right. take on that edge. <laughs> right. Um, so, I mean, then I, 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 but I kind of became interested in that moment eventually and was like, I just want to try to write jokes that are unpleasant to laugh at. Like, and I almost yeah. like, I want to see like what I can get people to laugh at that like feels gross or like bad or whatever. Um, yeah. And I think part of it is just like a interest in the extreme in some ways, like which I do, I do sort of have some, um, mm. some like, I, maybe everyone does, maybe people don't, I don't know. But like, I, I guess I do have like a gravitation toward things that are extreme. Um, and that's in part why I went on Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I was just like, um, uh, like how far does this go? It's like, uh-huh. I was just like, okay, like we're moving to LA, but how far does it go? Like, let's be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> what is another example of you just, just for, you know, the hell of it, seeing how far something goes? Um, you know, I'm, I've been doing stand-up comedy um, and uh, like those environments are very extreme and especially like after yeah. spending a lot of time in like poetry land, which I think can be mm. very genteel and very positive. I think poetry is a very, like, there's a lot of ethos about like community support. And like, when you go yeah. into stand up, everyone's like, you suck, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, you know, like, because, and now I really want to know, like, If intensity is, in a way, what you're after, what is your relationship to risk? Yeah, I mean, I guess in some ways I feel like I I have a high tolerance for risk and also, like, a low tolerance. Like, I'm not, like, you know... Um, Bungee jumping. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Always wear a bicycle helmet. Everyone should. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I am trying to... Like I, so I feel that poetry, for me at least, has been an avoidance of risk, right? Because I have like a lot of hangups about disclosure. Like I'm very private, and some of it's ideological, and like some of it's like distrust of like misuse of information and blah blah blah. And like you, you can scour the internet all you like, you won't find a picture <laughs> of my kid. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know. Um, And I guess some of it is, like, sort of the stuff we were talking about earlier, like, distrust of openness after, like, trying it and having it not go well or whatever. And poetry is so elliptical and it's so, like, obscure and it's also so unpopular that <laughs> it's a great medium for someone who feels that way. Because you can put anything in there. And I wrote this whole book that's, like, about, like, having an antagonistic relationship with my job. And yeah. like my job was like, you know, what have you done lately? And I was like, oh, I wrote this book. And they're like, very good because, like, you know, they don't read it. Um, you know, and, <laughs> um, and that, I'm not going to lie. I, on balance, the whole thing was a little bit unsatisfying. <laughs> so I am trying, I guess, to write something that is more that is more straightforward. Like, and that feels like a risk, I guess. Um, and I think that like, in some ways, like I do feel the like general current of like, fuck it, that's like emerged from sort of COVID. And so in some ways I'm like, this is the time to dial into that. Um, yeah. 
But that, like, it feels like it's appealing, but it's also scary, and the scariness is appealing, and... Mm-hmm. So I guess I like uh, – I think I have historically maybe been intolerant to creative risks in that way, and now I feel like now it's the time. Also, I'm, like, having, like, a midlife crisis maybe. I don't know. You think? I – oh, I mean, I don't know. Because <laughs> you're how old now? I'm 40. You know what? This is actually – I'm just realizing this right now. Like, I think I have been feeling a feeling of crisis and then when I turned, like, the minute I turned 40, I was like, thank God, now I'm middle-aged, I can have a midlife crisis, that's an accepted thing. I am normal. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> this has been very helpful, thank you. <laughs> How does that show up, your midlife crisis? Well, I mean, I am like, it's nothing spectacular, but I am trying to do different kind of, like, creative and performance things that, like, I haven't really done before and just take risks and like push stuff uh yeah in that way yeah because that's also one of the things that i saw in many of the poems that are about death across your collections is also this kind of banging yourself and the reader on over the head with this idea like oh well but we're alive right now you know don't forget we might as well do something with it you know and so in a way like even though it's often really hard to take your poems that are about death they feel really life-affirming too. many of them. Like, what do you think makes you want to really live? Um, I mean, I believe in life. <laughs> I mm. do. Like, I believe in, like, not in an anti-abortion way, but like in, like, I believe in the, like, the validity of all the living creatures on this earth. And I think they're, yeah. you know... I mean, I like sometimes I feel like I have a hard time accessing like exuberance or joyfulness or whatever. Like I have kind of like a can have kind of like a down disposition. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I mean, this is a really interesting question. I don't have a religious practice. Like I don't really think of myself as a spiritual person, but I I feel and believe a lot of things and like probably the number one thing that I like feel and believe is like the force of life. Yeah. Do you want to read one last poem? A poem actually from Hard Child. Did you bring that? I did. Okay, great. Um, it's on page 11, not horses. Not horses. What I adore is not horses with their modern domestic lifespan of 25 years. What I adore is a bug that lives only one day, especially if it's a terrible day, a day of train derailment or chemical lake or cop admits to cover up, a day when no one thinks of anything else, least of all that bug. I know how it feels, born as I've been, into these rotting times, as into sin. Everybody's busy, so distraught they forget to kill me, and even that won't keep me alive. I share my home, not with horses, but with a little dog, who sees poorly at dusk and menaces stumps, makes her muscle known to every statue. I wish she could have a single day of language so that I might reassure her, don't be afraid. Our whole world is dead, and so can do you no harm. 
Natalie Shapiro is the author of three poetry collections, No Object, winner of the 2014 Great Lakes College Association New Writers Award, Hard Child, shortlisted for the 2018 International Griffin Poetry Prize, and her latest, Popular Longing. Her awards include fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Ruth Lilly Foundation, and the Kenyon Review, and she teaches writing at the University of California, Irvine. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikafus. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>